Blog Talk Radio. Hi there. I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. In fact, our generation has lived through some major markers that each of us remembers, but perhaps few are as stunningly memorable as the Tate LaBianca murders that took place over 50 years ago back in August of 69. And our guest today, Ivor Davis, is a legendary reporter and the the author who was one of the very first on the scene when Sharon Tate and her house gets met their horribly gruesome end. He wrote the very first book on the shocking event. It was called Five to Die and even got up close and personal with the Manson gang at Spawn Ranch. But Ivor is joining us today to share more about his latest book. It's called Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder, and his prominent role in the new Epics TV series, Helter Skelter, and American Myth. This is all quite fascinating stuff, and I've had the pleasure of interviewing you before, and I'm so excited to welcome you back, Ivor. Thank you for doing that. Lovely, lovely to be back again. Well, before we go any further, though, I'd like to start out by congratulating you big time because Manson Exposed is now available as an audio book. And, Thank of you. course, if you don't get enough from reading your books or listening to it on audio format, I really hope everybody turns into the Epic's TV series, Helter Skelter and American Myth. So you are quite the renowned expert on the topic, Ivar. Well, Leslie Chilcott, who is a, uh, a, a terrific director, she is an Oscar-winning filmmaker, spent about a year and a half making this six-hour documentary. And I want to tell you this. I have seen pretty well every documentary on the Manson family over the last half century. And this is by far the most intense, most detailed, and sometimes, as you know yourself, gruesome, the most gruesome. Yes, I did just watch episode four. I I haven't seen, uh, at least in my area, episode five hasn't been broadcast yet, but I'll give everybody a warning. There are parts uh, that you want to shut your eyes because it does get a little gruesome, but mostly it's just fascinating, fascinating information that you and the other people they interviewed shared. Yes, uh, because it captures the period of 69 so perfectly. I can say that because I was there, I lived it and and experienced it, and the film and the series, which runs every day of the week a uh, show every day of the week it can can transport you back to the sixty nine period that uh, we, we we hear about and we know about, and it was such an awful crime in the twentieth century. Absolutely. And, of course, I want to start uh, picking your brain and your memory and all this. But before we do, I had mentioned before you and I went on air that I was going to expose our own personal past that started in the mid-60s. It happened to take place at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And I'm going to let you explain the rest. Well, let me tell you this, that you were a young lady at the time, And I remember somebody screaming louder than the other 18,000 people, and that was you. And as a result of your screaming, and I I don't know, I mean, you haven't explained to me why you screamed from start to finish. John Lennon said to me, 
that Mary Eileen girl who is screaming nonstop, <laughs> we, are, we are no longer doing touring because she's just come to see us. She hasn't come to listen to our music. Did you come to listen to the music or did you come because you were in love with Paul? I was in love with Paul, but you already know. Now, Iva, we should also let everybody in on the secret. I didn't just go to the Cap House to scream. Uh, I went to the Cap House because I was in love with the Fab Four. But you, talk about being up close and personal, were traveling with those people. So please tell us a little bit about your own fabled past, how you got to be buddy up with Paul, John, George, and Ringo, and then uh, the, the rest of some of your career. Well, very simply, in, in a nutshell, I was the West Coast correspondent for the London Daily Express, which was a huge newspaper in London with four and a half million readers a day. And those were the days when people actually read newspapers. And the, I was their West Coast correspondent. I got a call from the editor in London. He said, get to San Francisco. The boys are arriving. I said, who are the boys? He said, they were the Beatles. And he said to me, not only are you going to travel with them, eat with them, drink with them, ride with them in their limousines and their private jets, you'll be writing George Harrison's column as a ghostwriter. So off I went to meet the Beatles. And believe me, it was a, an amazing ticket to ride because I knew very little about them. I knew what most Americans knew. In, in, in February 1964, they came on a show known as the Ed Sullivan Show. They were a smash hit, and would you believe, 74 million people tuned into the Beatles. And then six months later, they came to America and conquered America. And boy, did they ever. <laughs> so you were there, but not only were you there and did you travel with the Fab Four, when you actually let them fly, jump back off to England, jolly old England, you stuck around, and then you got another assignment. You were told, again in 69, get up the hill to Cielo Drive, something's going on. So again, Ivor, I'll let you take it from here. Very simply, I got a call. There's been a bunch of murders. Nobody knew a thing. Cielo Drive was about 20 minutes from my home. I raced over to this lovely mansion in a posh part of Beverly Hills in a canyon, and there were dozens of police. The place was sealed off. There were reporters, and we didn't know what had happened. We stuck around. We asked questions, and then I was very, very fortunate because four doors away lived an old soccer-playing friend of mine called Philip Freed. I knocked at his door. I said, can I use your phone? I said, who lives in the house down the hill? He said, Sharon Tate lives there with Roman Polanski. It knocked my socks off. I didn't believe it. And then about two hours later, the police confirmed that Sharon had been murdered. Unfortunately, she was eight months pregnant at the time, along with four, three other friends. And there was a young man who was also killed. So that was my introduction to this awful, awful crime. And then for the next two years, I followed it, went to the trials, interviewed everybody at the Spahn Movie Ranch. And then 50 years later, I decided to write the sort of ultimate story of my experiences in the Manson experience, which was quite awful and memorable. Boy, yeah, that combination of awful and memorable is so true. And your book... I mean, you, I, I will say from the first time I interviewed you, oh, you know, I kind of thought I've, I'd seen a lot of shows on the, on the murders. I'd done this. 
when I read your book, oh, my gosh, there was so much information that I hadn't known. And the same is true also of this Epic TV series because Helter Skelter and American Myth, you bring so much information that I am sure viewers were never aware of before. And it really kind of ties the various bits of the story together and fleshes it out. But I do want to say, in addition to the fact that you were reporting and, as you said, you interview people, but you did actually spend time on Spawn Ranch too. I did. And I must tell you, that the the recreations well it's not a recreation they have some terrific film footage in the in the docu series that I'm talking about and you you have mentioned but I also enjoyed uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie that came out last year Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I don't know if you got a chance to see it uh, have you seen it yes. yet yes well, okay I I don't want to spoil the ending but it is a fairy story but. I'll, I'll tell you this, having spent several days at the Spahn Ranch, Quentin Tarantino actually recreates the Spahn Ranch as an eerie children of the damned, uh, when you see the scenes of the girls and George Spahn who own the ranch. So it's worth seeing that film just for the sake of seeing what Tarantino has wrought on screen. Well, yes, and another thing that you brought out in the in the docu series, as you call it, um, was the fact that Manson. I mean, at first he started out that several of the the people said. I mean, he was kind, of course, of free love and you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and let's all you know love each other and all this. So I can see the initial attraction, but then various things. He he was rejected by a variety of people, and you bring that out too. Actually, you bring kind of. Two main people who rejected him, uh, Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson. Uh, and so then all of a sudden it, the switch flipped and he became this monster. Yes. What happened was briefly that Terry Melcher, according to Manson's walk mine, had promised to give him a recording contract. And strangely enough, it would have been for Apple, possibly, which was the Beatles album in, in, in America. But Terry Melcher didn't think Manson was that great. And the other connection you mentioned is, of course, with the Beach Boy drummer, Dennis Wilson, who amazingly, when I even mention it today, Dennis Wilson met Manson by picking up two girls of the family who were hitchhiking. And one day Manson showed up with his bus, moved into Dennis Wilson's house. Dennis Wilson had the girls and Manson living there for three months, making a complete havoc of his place helping themselves to his food, his gold records. And because Wilson was enchanted by Manson, and Manson thought that Dennis Wilson was his ticket to rock and roll fame. Wow. And I think, Ivor, too, I mean, in your fable career, uh, of course, you you know, you would think the Beatles and Charles Manson, two disparate, <laughs> totally different events uh, and people, but they were, of course – totally related, again, because the White Album was such a, uh, well, as far as Charles Manson, uh, an inspiration for him to do the Helter Skelter and all that. And you actually went back and asked the Beatles what they thought after this all came out, didn't you? I, I did. And just to clarify what you said, because even today when you mention it, the idea that Manson thought Beatles' lyrics in songs like Helter Skelter and Revolution uh, were secret messages to him to uh, warn him of a race riot coming 
when you say it today in 2020, it's absolutely astoundingly unbelievable. But that's what yeah. happened. And, and so uh, I, I did go back to the ranch and I did talk to, to the Manson family members. And, and I must say, uh, even today, I, I can't believe that that was the thesis for the murders and that was the motive that was used by the prosecution, which was successful, which helped convict Manson and his gang. Well, and speaking of the prosecution, uh, from what I understand, you heard that Vincent Bugliosi, you actually used your book, again, Five to Die, the very first book ever written about this event, and he used that as kind of a basis from which he formed his arguments. So you were really in the thick of things, Ivor. Well, I must say that is a bit, it sounds terribly self-serving to say that, because, but I should succinctly point out that my book which was called Five to Die came out before the trial and I learned from a a deputy prosecutor who worked with Vince Bugliosi that he got the book and he used the Manson Beatles Helter Skelter philosophy for his prosecution because when I sat in the courtroom in, in July and August of 1970 50 years ago and heard him lay out this explanation for the motive, I just thought everybody had gone stark, raving bonkers. But it worked. As I, as I said, it definitely worked. And as the world knows, it resulted in the convictions. Well, and one of the things, too, that he kind of was a reminder to me when I was, that one of the commentators said in the series on Epics was, and I'd forgotten, but music was like the muse for our generation. I mean, we, anything, you know, Bob Dylan and, you know, of course, the Beatles, and, but it, it took on this just major impact. Uh, I'm sure it has for many generations, too, but I don't know. It seems that uh, the the early boomers, the first wave of boomers, we really, you know, dug our music, and so I can see where Manson, of course, having fed all his followers all these drugs, he was able to certainly, uh, you know, manipulate them in certain ways, but uh, I, I can see where, you know, it it became, the again, the inspiration or the thesis, as you said, for, for what he was able to have them do. Yes, and, and it's well laid out in the, in the docu-series. And uh, almost, I would say, two months ago, I was talking to Diane Lake, who also appears prominently in this series, and here's a young woman who, at the age of 14, 14, was handed yeah. over to Manson by her parents. She is powerful. She tells a story that is unbelievable. And she said, and she told me again, and she says in the series, that Manson brainwashed them all with the Beatles music, and they actually believed everything that Manson was telling them. They, they swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. Well, of course, she was 14, 15 at the time, uh, a young woman, yeah. and today she's a mature grandmother. Uh, and so uh, I, I, she is so convincing that I, I, I sort of shudder in horror as she tells these stories of uh, the experience she went through at the hands of Manson. And if you haven't seen the series, you've got to see it just, just to listen to Diane Lake. 
Well, I, I was so impressed. And the other thing is, uh, again, all of us are aging just a little bit <laughs> these days. But here are these people who are, you know, hippie kids. You know, I mean, some of them look like librarians, former librarians these days. I mean, they everybody's grown up and matured. and But the things that come out of their mouths are just as kind of instigating of you know memories of of anything i mean it it's it's quite a series i have to say well and i do i could keep you of course all day long i don't want to do that cuz i promised you 15 minutes i'm already running way over but but i've before we go you in writing the book 50 years later again on manson exposed after i know you kept up with it but it it was a big break i would assume uh and then um preparing for this series did anything strike you again as particularly, um, you know, that you may have forgotten some of the details or anything that, you know, was particularly important that you hadn't realized or that kind of reinvigorated your thought process on this? Well, a great deal did do that. But I must tell you that when I listened and watched the episode in which they brilliantly explained Manson as a child growing up, and, and, and the fact that his mother was a ne'er-do-well who went to prison. His father, he never knew. He was battered around from reform school to reform school. To be honest with you, I knew that, but when I watched it again, actually felt sympathy for Manson. But, and this is a big but, every child who gets a bad upbringing does not end up as a mass murderer. And so even though there was a, a iotas and, and, and feelings of sympathy for the way Manson was brought up, when I knew what I know, uh, but the sympathy went out the window because he was a con man and he was a puppet master and he was a, a Machiavellian monster. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, Ivor, I so look forward to this interview. It's beyond even my wildest expectations. Uh, and before we go, uh, you do have a fabulous website. I've spent a lot of time there. And, in fact, I just signed up to subscribe to your newsletter. So let everybody know where they can find out more about you. Again, get on your newsletter, all the stuff you're doing, and, of course, this fascinating story that impacted each of us so much. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it, you can get everything you wanted to know about Ivor Davis, but were afraid to ask by going to <laughs> Ivor Davis, going to IvorDavisBooks.com. Uh, you can get the book. You can you can order the audio book, and you can find out well, what I've been doing for the last fifty odd years. But again, it's a delight to be on with you. And I want to say, next time we talk, please. Let's talk about something light and frothy and funny and, 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 and all that kind of stuff, and even even feisty. Well, I like that idea a lot, too. So we've covered the, the gruesome stuff. We're going to move on to all those insider stories you've got about Hollywood maybe next time. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Well, Ivor, like I said, I look forward to this interview so much. You've, you're one of my all-time favorite interviewees, and Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me and my listeners. It's a pleasure, and thanks for having me. 
Well, and I do, before we go, please, everyone out there, even if you think you know everything about Charles Manson and the murders, you don't. Let me tell you, Manson Exposed is also now, as we'd mentioned, on an audio format. Go to Ivor's website and check out all the information he's got there. And if you have uh, subscribed to Epics TV, and even if you don't, I would suggest subscribing just for this fantastic series. It's called Helter Skelter, an American Myth, and Ivor plays a prominent, prominent role. So it's worth checking it out and just for that. So until next time, this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, saying I'll catch you later. Bye-bye.